This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Mary Moody, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure, actually. Um, I, we've been, I think, in the industry, both you and I, for a very long time, but I don't think we've crossed paths before. No, I think this is a first. Yeah, yeah. it is a first. And I do remember selling, I think, all of your memoirs because I was a bookseller for a long time. Right. Yeah. I'm... Let me introduce you. So Mary Moody is a tour guide, a speaker, an author, and one of Australia's best-known gardeners. Mary started as a journalist in the late 60s and spent several years as a reporter and a feature writer for magazines and newspapers. She became a passionate gardener in the 70s after moving to the Blue Mountains with her family. Using her journalism skills, she wrote more than 40 gardening books and magazines and was a presenter on Gardening Australia. I mean, I just think that's a phenomenal amount of work. Well, to me it was a job. Yes. I mean, I, I would be commissioned to write a book. I couldn't believe the lack of my hobby, my passion actually mm. turning into my career. It was pure serendipity. Word got around that I knew about gardening. And so I had four kids and so I'd get up, get the kids off to school in the morning, just go straight to that, well, in those days, typewriter, Yeah. sit down and I would just put in the hours. It was a job of work because yeah. I was trained as a jobbing journalist. And so... I loved it. I mm. thought it was a great time. Well, you must have because you've written a lot. Prolific. <laughs> in 2000, Mary lived alone for six months in a medieval town in southwest France where she ended up buying a house which she still visits. You still own it? Yeah. I mean, it's worth sixpence halfpenny. Yes. Uh, but um, I've kept it on because, in fact, since my husband died, the children have inherited sort of a larger portion of it. So it will eventually, when they can afford um, to go there regularly, it'll become like the family... Holiday house. Holiday house, yes. Yeah, how lovely. Um, Mary's passions are family, um, food, gardening and travel. She leads tours in France and the Himalayas. Mary's new book, The Accidental Tour Guide, is a beautiful memoir written after the death of Mary's husband, David, in 2014. It is a powerful, moving and inspiring story about how to rebuild your life with the people who matter most. Um, What dawned on me when I was looking at the research um, and finding out um, formally more about you, because you'd always been on my peripheral, I always knew about you, is how you have told your life stories through books. I mean, Mm. usually one people only have one story to Mm. tell, don't they? Mm. I know. In fact, it came up in an interview I did this morning where they said, your fifth memoir, you know, and I couldn't help but laugh because, in fact, what happened was that the first... I mean, I'm, as a trained journalist, I'm, I was always taught to draw people out and to write their story. It never occurred to me that I would ever be writing my own story. But when I took the decision to go and have sabbatical and spend six months in France on my own, my agent said to me, oh, that'd be a great story. Um, because and how old were you then, roughly? So I was, I was just turning 50. 
Yeah. And what had happened is that I had had my children very young and so by the and and also my mum Muriel who was an old journalist too. She'd lived with us for 26 years and suddenly um, when I was coming up to my 50th birthday, I realised that um, my kids had all grown up and gone off to do their careers. They'd all moved out of home. There's no, you know, tertiary institutions in the Blue Mountains. And my mum had died. And suddenly I was free for the first time in my life. Mm-hmm. And I'd done very little travelling, just a, a little bit of travelling. And I thought, this is my moment. I'm just going to take six months off. I was working on the gar- on Gardening Australia and go and live in a remote French village and just experience. And how did you choose where you were going? Well, that was um, just serendipity as well. I had a, a friend who was an old showbiz writer from working for Rupert Murdoch, as I did on TV Week back in the 19, early 1970s. His name was Jock Veach and he'd ended up going to New York to work for... Um, Murdoch's and he'd retired to France and someone gave me his email. I hadn't spoken to him for years and years and I just wrote to him and I said, oh, Jock, I'm thinking of running away from home for six months. Do you know somewhere I could stay? And he wrote back and said, come and stay with me and then you can look around and find somewhere to rent. So I landed on Jock's doorstep, having driven across France on the wrong side of the road, never having done anything like that in my life before. And and a huge adventure. Had you travelled before? I had travelled. My husband, David Hannay, who's a filmmaker, and I had taken the children on one long trip um, right. to the Cannes Film Festival. And oh, I, I was had... in Cannes a couple of weeks ago. Oh, were you? Yeah. Isn't it fabulous? <laughs> oh, we ha- Look, we had the most marvellous time. We lived in a little house um, with the kids and then we stayed after the film festival and drove all over France and um, Italy and so on with the children. Beautiful coastline. Gorgeous part of the world. Yeah. So I had done that travelling but I'd certainly, um, and I'd done the travelling um, as a tour guide because that started during the period when I was um, at Gardening Australia and that was once again you know, absolutely by chance that um, World Expeditions had identified that a lot of Older people were now back, not just young backpackers, but they were going on these treks in the Himalayas and they wanted um, somebody who could identify the plants that they were seeing. They were walking through rhododendron forests and, and wonderful um, meadows of wildflowers and nobody could tell them the names of the plants. So I got the gig and fell in love with it. So I had done that travelling. But I, I did, more than that, I, I had worked hard all my life. Mm. When I left school, I worked when I had children, I continued working. I had never had a break. Where did you grow up? I grew up down at Balmoral Beach. Oh, wow. Nice place to grow up. Very nice. In a funny little block of flats. My parents were both um, journalists. My yeah. father was the editor of um, the Sunday Telegraph and he had been a war correspondent or a foreign correspondent during the Second World War and they'd lived in New York and Washington, right. my mum and dad. And uh, slightly dysfunctional family in that um, they were highly intelligent and fabulously loving and entertaining parents but they both um, were incredibly heavy drinkers and smokers and my father was um, always, you know, having affairs and there were always arguments. It was a, it was a scene of, you know, domestic upheaval on a regular basis. So mm. on the one hand I was growing up in this beautiful setting but on the, the other hand, you know, there was just a... I was, it was in a warring household. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and we'd never owned a house. And so when I met David when I was 21, um, we got together 
and we bought a house. It was an absolute revelation to me. I never imagined myself ever owning a piece of property. Oh, and that was the other thing, which is a bit of a sideline, but my parents were both communists and they were both members of the Mossman branch of the Communist <laughs> Party. Party. If you could imagine such a thing. And so there was this attitude that owning Seems property... Seems to be an anomaly, communism a, and Mossman. Absolute con- yeah. contradiction. <laughs> yeah. Um, Anyway, at the end of the day, I mean, I got to 50 and I thought, I'm just going to take some time for myself. And my agent said, that would make a great story. And I said, oh, for heaven's sake. And so you were still with David at the time? Oh, yes. We'd been together. I mean, we'd been together. You just wanted to take six months out. Yeah. In fact, initially he was going to come too. We were going to go away together for six months. And then he got two movies up and running up on the Gold Coast. Right. And he said, well, we can't go. And I said, well, I've already organised my leave from the show. I'm going. David was an incredibly supportive husband in that he loved what I did. He loved my um, my commitment to my work and he he was almost like my manager. He And so he enabled, he was my enabler. He mm. was the one that said, oh, yes, you should do that. That would be fabulous. Never thinking that I'd fall in love with France and want to buy a house and that, you know. And so you went for six months. I went he for six months. He knew you were going for six oh, months. Oh, yes. Yeah. And it's fact, not like you went for three weeks and stayed six no, months. No, no, no. I, I took the, I knew exactly mm-hmm. when I was leaving, exactly when I was coming right. back. Yeah. Yeah, this was before the days. This was 2000. We didn't have internet. Yeah, with mobile phones. I remember phones. those days. So I writing aerograms. <laughs> well, no. What I used to do is every Sunday morning I'd go up to the local um, phone booth and I'd call him reverse wow. charges and check in and tell him what I was doing. Yeah. And I didn't write anything for the first three months. I just absolutely had a ball, had fun. It was a height of summer. There were all these, you know, village. Um, f- feast days and festivals and markets and food and wine and parties and I put on 12 kilos or something mm. and then and then having negotiated to write a book about this adventure and it was interesting because that was for Pan Macmillan and my publisher Tom Gilliatt said, oh, right. we don't want you to just write a travel log about no. your adventures in France. We want you to write the story of your life and what got you to the point where at the age of 50 you felt you really needed to just get out and have your own space. And so eventually after the first three months I sat down, I had to go and buy a laptop, I bought a laptop, and then I sat down and I started to write this book. And um, it was cathartic because I thought, first of all, I rang my agent reverse charges and I said, "Um, what person is this book in? And she said, what do you mean? I said, she, she's first person. And I said, oh, you mean I, I'll be, you know, I'd never <laughs> written about myself. So I sat down and I started to write about my funny childhood, yeah. my, you know, unusual childhood, and then about my early relationship with David and about my working life and why, you know, and I just wrote in very, in journal, I write in journalese. I yeah. don't write literature. I write right stories. I tell a story. So I was just telling the story and it took it up to the point where, you know, I had this amazing six months and I fell in love with that part of France and I thought the only way I'll ever come back is if we buy a little house here. And the houses were so cheap. I mean, you could not buy a tin shed in Broken Hill for what you could buy a lovely little stone house in a village. I think it's still the same. It's, in fact... They've gone down. Yeah. I mean, it's not, you couldn't call it an investment property. They've gone down. Uh, certainly, you know, just those little remote rural places. So so that's what happened. And it really changed the course of my life writing that book. And I gave it to Tom Gilliard when I came back 
Um, or he, he rang me up. He said, did you ever write that book? And I said, oh, oh, yes, I did. And so I hadn't signed a contract or anything. It was just an agreement. And I gave it to him and we edited it. And I thought, nobody's going to be interested in this, you know. Because what was it called? It was, it was called, called Au Revoir. Au Revoir doesn't mean goodbye. It says it means see you later sort yes. of. That's the French Because it, it implies I'm going to see you again. I'm going it? to see you again, yes. yes. And then I, I came up with the subheading um, which was running away from home at 50 Yeah, because that's what I was doing. And I think that was the clincher because I, I think, think every 50-year-old woman yes. or 48-year-old woman or 52-year-old woman looked at that and thought running away to a French village, I could do that. I think you started something. I think I started something. And, I, and it was interesting because... Um, you know, they immediately wanted another one. They wanted yeah. a, a follow-up. And, oh, I thought, well, what a... And it was a bestseller. It was a bestseller. It was, And, in yeah. fact, do you remember Books Alive where, where um, the government actually helped authors? Do you know, I remember it very well because I ran it for seven years. Well, there you are. <laughs> so I was part of Books Alive yes. one of those years. Yes, and we that did was that, when Brett Osmond was running That's it. right. Yes. We, ran, we ran the tour and we, you know, and it was... I was just... I was gobsmacked. But, of course, the result of it was that I decided I didn't want to go on working on the gardening show. I loved it. But 10 years is enough in any yes. one role. I, I felt it was time for me to spread my wings. And um, and I was still doing, I was still being the accidental tour guide, still yeah. taking people on adventures. And, um, yeah, and so it was, I had to write a second book and that was a, a very weird thing because I was trying to think of new things to write about and because I'd already... And you were back in, where were you back? back oh, in well, I was, um, I started off writing it back in Australia and yeah. I thought where will I pick up the story? So I picked up the story from when we'd bought the house and then I went back to France and because the first six months had been absolutely innocent and I'd had, I never had any expectation of, you know, falling in love or getting into a relationship. I went back, same group of friends, more parties, you know, and um, I was writing and writing about new places, spreading myself out a bit into new areas. And then I um, fell into this relationship with a man that I met and, um, I was absolutely stunned. I mean, it was because it didn't feel like me. It wasn't the sort of thing I did. And I was perfectly content in my marriage to David and I still loved him and family was everything to me. And I also had a bit of an attitude about being the other woman because this man was married too because my father had all these relationships and I always hated these women who'd been having relationships with my dad. Yeah. And I suddenly thought, oh, I'm doing that. That's what I'm doing, you know. And it was I was fairly... Um, horrified, I guess, but I it, uh, there was something so compelling and so. Was he French? He was French, and he yeah. was charming, and he was rich, and he, you know, wanted to take me to Paris and take me to the best restaurants. And my darling David, who had, you know, was really good at managing money, and the film industry is not the most lucrative business to be in, was always, you know, he'd I'd say, well, let's go out for dinner, and he'd say oh, but I love your cooking, let's just stay home. Yeah. And suddenly I was sitting, you know, on the Champs-Élysées and I was just completely, stupidly, you know... Mesmerised. Mesmerised and blown away and captivated by this situation. And somehow I thought I could get away with it. 
Um, but David, who knew me very, very well, I mean, he, I'd met him when I was 21 and he was 32 and yeah. we'd been together for 33 years at that point and had these children. We even had grandchildren. I think I had already three grandchildren in my early, um, or four grandchildren in my, in my 50s. And um, the moment I came back from that trip, he'd already worked it out. Oh, wow. And he just said something's going on. And, of course, I, I'm not very facile. I just burst into tears and told him immediately. And he was incredible about it, actually, because he said, you know, he was, well, no, I don't, he wasn't furious. He was terribly upset and terribly hurt. But he said, I understand. He said he, David was an absolutely passionate about his job as a filmmaker and I yeah. love that about him because he was not a boring person at all. He, you know, he absolutely loved what he did. But he was away from home an awful lot, sometimes for up to three or four months at a time. Yeah. And um, and I was left to rear the children and I still had to work to kind of keep that even income coming in. And, um, and, and, and for 20 years he was in his Sydney office down at Broadway Monday to Friday and I was at home, you know, getting on with the kids and my work and the garden and the house and everything. And he would come home Friday night and go back Monday morning. So... Mm. He blamed himself. Initially he said, I have not been very um, supportive emotionally. I mean, I thought he had been but he didn't feel he had been. And then he blamed the other man, of course. Mm. And then he blamed the menopause because I was in the middle of menopause. But he never, and even to the day he died, ever blamed me. He just saw, he could see what had happened and he understood he didn't and he wanted it to stop, of course. Yes, he didn't like it. He didn't like it at all mm. because it was going to destroy what, something very important to him, which was our marriage. And um, But he tolerated it because it did go on for a little while. It took me almost two years to completely sever that relationship. Because, you kept going back and forth. Well, I was going back to do tours. I was taking yeah. people. I was going back twice a year leading tours and inevitably yeah. I would end up you know, back in the arms of this um, chap and David knew and um, and he uh, tolerated it to a point. But I, by the end of a, the second year he just said, well, I can't, uh, this has to end, I'm leaving. And that really pushed me into a corner and I knew. I mean, I, I, I don't know, I somehow thought. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I could, you know how, I knew how I had juggled 
my work life and my family life with, you know, four kids and at that during the Gardening Australia years I had my mother who was ailing um, so I was caring for her at home and I had four teenage children and a full-time very demanding job. And I thought now, oh, well, I can I can juggle, you know, being in love with this man in France and still having my family. And, yeah. And, but it had to come to an end and, and it did come to an end and... Um, and it was we were within a whisker of separating, mm. and um, at the end of the day, I just I had to make up my mind, and I decided that that was my priority, David and the kids. And and did you imagine that if you if you'd gone the other way and you'd chosen him, leaving Australia and living in France? I could no. never have done that. No, I could never have left my kids and grandkids and my garden and my home and my friends. Or David, I couldn't have. And I'd, I loved France but it, I, I'm, I'm not French. I wouldn't have been happy living in France. Mm. And, you know, quite frankly, I don't think the other man was all that interested in leaving his wife. He was just being yep. the other man. And yeah. um, and I knew that, you know, that I made the right decision and it was sort of made over a weekend we sat. I don't think we left the house for two days and we walked and paced and talked and whatever and then finally I said that's it all right and I put an end to it and it took us a while it took about six months I think for us to feel totally relaxed with each other again and to recover and to recover and and for wounds to sort of heal over a bit um but ultimately now and I would never ever ever say to anyone that having an affair will improve your marriage. But what it did in our inst- in our case was it opened up a lot of conversations that yeah. had never been had. It it pushed us to the edge and then we came back for it, from it and so we had a different relationship and in a lot of ways a better relationship mm. and we spent more time together. Yeah, and you were very open about it. So was that the next book? That was the next book and, see, that was curious too because... Once, the, once David knew about the affair, I got in touch with Pan McMillan. I said, I don't think I can write this book because my life's just gone upside down, you know, and I told them what was happening. And yeah. I said, I, I just don't know how I can write it. And, of course, I'd signed a contract and I'd taken an, an advance. And they said, and they were lovely and they said, well, you just do what you feel's right and whatever. So I had the deadline coming up and I, I, I wrote the book not mentioning the affair, not mentioning anything. And I sat down and read through it when I got to the end because I'm very deadline-oriented as a journo. And I thought this is a hollow book because you can tell something's really wrong or something's going on. You can tell that this voice of this woman isn't the same one as in Au Revoir. This is a really scatty, all-over-the-place voice. And what I did was I actually ran away from home a second time. David was a bit of a... Uh, gym junkie and he used to go in and swim two kilometres a day in Bathurst. Love that. I swim daily. Yeah, he loved it. It was great (laughs) therapy for him. And he left one morning and I packed up my computer and I left him a note on the kitchen table saying, I have run away from home to do some more work on this book before the deadline. And I went and stayed in a funny motel called the Big Trout Motor Inn in Oberon. Right. And wow. I, to- I told him where I was. So I was only 25 minutes away. Right. And I hi- I rented it for two weeks and I-, I rewrote the book and I wrote the real story. Wow. And I came back. Oh, he came over and had dinner with me a few times. He yeah. said, what are you up to? And I said, oh, you- you'll read it, you'll read it. So I-, I gave it to him and it took, he's a slow reader. It took him two days to read it. And he was <laughs> sitting in the back room reading this book and I was biting my fingernails. Anyway, at the end of the day, he came out of the room and he said, 
I hate this book. I'm never going to like this book. But this is your story and you have a right to tell it. Were you nervous about his reaction? Were you nervous about him reading it? I was confused. Yeah. To be quite honest, the whole the whole episode had been quite confusing for me because you know it, it, what had happened was quite out of character for me and I I didn't really know myself. I sort of felt I lost myself for that period of time. But I then I knew I had to get my voice back for the book. I knew for that particular book and I came up with the title which was quite a salacious title. Yes, um and you going to tell us the title. The title is yes, Last Tango in Toulouse because yes. this is where I had met this Frenchman. And um and of course, you know, the famous film Last Tango in Paris and um I do know it. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a little bit of a steal. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. I'm committed to it and I'll just do it. And then of course, you know, it, it, the world went mad um, because Before it became... the world going mad, I just want yes. to ask you about your children. Oh, hilarious. Well, because, not really hilarious. Well, not le- really hilarious, no. I'd imagine. My daughter... Had they known before the Oh, book? they knew. The, oh, the minute that David, that I had told David what was happening, he was on the phone to the kids. I right. just need to tell you about your mother. Right. So um, their reactions were very different. Two of the boys went very quiet and didn't say anything very much at all. Yeah. My daughter, who at that stage had three children of her own, was in her 30s, said, I understand, Mum. She said, you know, I I, I don't like it, I'm not happy about it, I'm really scared that you and Dad will break up, but I I do understand. My youngest son, who I now live with, um, he's 39 now, but he was in his early 20s, he said, how could you, how could you go against everything that you have ever taught us to believe in. He was outraged and I, I was mortified, of course. And mm. um, But I just said, well, you know, it is what it is. And um, we're a very tight-knit family. We're very close. Mm. The kids are close with each other and mm. I'm close to them. I think telling people is one thing but then them reading the memoir is another yes. thing. Were you worried about that? Um do you know something? I don't think any of the three boys read that book. Okay, yeah. Uh, my daughter I, I, did. I understand why. They, they yeah. wouldn't have read it and I yeah. don't think they would have read the, the ones that came after that. And I knew that part of the reason I'd done it was that I'd signed the contract and that I felt I was obliged to do it. Um, and I knew it was a much, much better book. It was a much stronger book and it was very personal and very revealing and very honest. Um, and I, but I was also conflicted about the content. Um, but I, I don't know. I just took a leap and yeah, did you it. did. Mm. Okay, the long hot summer. So the long hot summer was when David and I he came back to France during that summer in two thousand and three when there was a huge heat wave mm-hmm. and people died. You know, lots yeah, of elderly people that. died in Paris. And um, oh, it was just you know, a really difficult time. And see, once again, because lo- because Last Tango had also been a bestseller, they just wanted me to keep going. Yeah. And so I kept writing. And so I was what I was doing was documenting really the breakdown of my marriage and this ongoing negotiation between David and I about this ongoing relationship with the other man, but set in that, you know, romantic French setting and I was writing about how I was feeling. In fact, when I talk to you about it now and thinking about it, it all seems like a bit of a dream really. Um, 
and then... That, that it wasn't your life? Well, no, that I, almost as if I was writing fiction. But yeah. of course, I know it's bizarre when I think about it and I sometimes wake up in the middle of the night and think about it. Um, anyway, I wrote about that very, very difficult period and I think, you know, it didn't sell as well. Obviously, maybe people were getting a bit fed up with the whole story now. I was dragging on and on. And then the last book in the series, um, Sweet Surrender, was about us coming back together again and getting our life back together again. And that was a much shorter book and it was quite poignant in a way. Um, so that's how I ended up having four memoirs. You know, by the time I was 55, I'd written four <laughs> memoirs. Almost and, one a year. Almost one a year. And I, and to me, I just thought I will never write another word about myself again. I immediately got back into writing. I think I wrote a gardening book for children. I think it's children. very confronting and it's very brave. Yeah, I mean. There's, there's living your life is one thing and that's hard enough. And then to document it because mm. there's so much reflection in it that that's even harder. Yes, but, you know, in a sense, reflection is such a healthy thing to do. It is, but it's not easy. But it's not easy. And at that time, it wasn't as reflective because I was actually writing about these things while they were happening, while, while I was in the midst it. of the yeah. drama, I was documenting it. So it was um, such a maelstrom. It was a really um, kind of crazy few years when I was kept on churning out these books and then I honestly thought I'll never write another word about myself again. And I, now you have. And now I have. Okay, tell me about this book. Okay, so we had we got back into our married life. Um, mm -hmm. We bought this farm out near Bathurst. All up, how long were you married? Uh, 43 years. Yeah. So there's got to be ups and downs. Oh, there have got to be ups and downs, of course. And, I mean, we'd had lots of ups and downs but nothing like that. I mean, we had been conflicted about... Lots of bits and small things. I mean, we're very different sort of people, really. David was very intense, quite se took himself quite seriously. I mean, he um, was a larger-than-life sort of person. Very, He'd been an actor as a young man. He had this big, booming voice and a very big ego and he was a, you know, loved working in the film industry and he was very well-loved. He had mentored a lot of young writers and directors and producers and sound people and actors and... You know, and uh, he was this formidable person. And, um, you know, uh, we had 10 years. We got back into our marriage and um, I went on being a tour guide. As I said, I wrote, I wrote a cookbook. I wrote a gardening book for children. He was producing more films. And then suddenly, out of the blue in 2012, he'd been complaining of indigestion. He'd been banging his chest sometimes, getting up from the dinner table and sort of saying he, you know, had a felt something was stuck, went and had a gastroscope and they found this massive tumour just at the top or base of his oesophagus and he was um, given a PET scan and basically was told that he had terminal, inoperable, incurable cancer. And you could have knocked us both over backwards. He was 73 and fit as a flea so young, yeah. and I was in my early 60s and we'd always thought, I mean, I'd always thought that he'd live longer than me because he came from a very long-lived Scottish family 
Um, you know, his mother lived well into her 90s. I think he had an aunt who was 104 or something and he was a moderate man. He wasn't a drinker. He liked a glass of wine occasionally but he was a very moderate man and he was fit, as I said, he was a swimmer and suddenly he gets this death sentence. And we used to joke about the fact that I would probably go before him because I came from a very short-lived family and all my family died of either alcoholism or tobacco or suicide or syphilis, really. My grandfather died of syphilis. No, so <laughs> they were all, see, my, my family were all Irish ratbags mm. and his were all very sort of steady Scottish stock. Mm. And I used to say, oh, well, you know, it's good that you've learned to cook for yourself because, you know, I'll be the one to pop off first. And so we were stunned. And uh, I decided to stop work. I still had one tour I had to honour because it was, you know, imminent and everyone had paid and packed their bags. So I had to go off to India right at the beginning of his illness. I went off and he went down to have radiation therapy in Wagga. And he was still there when I got back and I went down to Wagga and stayed with him. And then I just stayed with him through the whole two years of this um, nightmare of um, Did he have treatment. a treatment right through? Oh, that. yes, he had two lots of chemotherapy. But what the book is a lot about, I mean, the, the book is about documenting this this terrible thing that happened to us, reflecting on what had happened in the past. I had to do that, especially for course, new readers. Yes. I had to say, well, you know, this had been what our marriage had been like and now we were in this space where we were dealing with, you know, um, cancer, terminal cancer. And David's reaction to the diagnosis was what was the most, um, well, unsettling for me in that it it wasn't that he didn't accept it because he knew that, you know, these were the facts, but he was going to fight it and he was really angry about it. Mm. He was furious. He was incensed. He was outraged and he he just, he blamed himself for not picking up on the symptoms sooner and he was really tough on himself about it and all he talked about incessantly was, you know, how was, what was going to happen to all the people he was working with, all the projects he was developing. How could anybody in the film industry find out he had cancer, was dying of cancer? All these projects would fall down in a heap. And so he he wanted to keep it a secret and I was completely against that. I said, these people love you. They're working with you. They want to know. They want to know. They will support you. And it took him a long time to get to the point where he told people. And he, in a sense, he wallowed in that sadness about, you know, the loss to the Australian film industry (laughs) because he'd been, you know, he'd won lots of awards. Mm. He won the Raymond Longford Award, which is the top award. He'd won the... The uh, um, a peace prize for a film he made in South Africa, an anti-apartheid film, and he won a prize at the Cannes Film Festival. So he was a very celebrated person. But I had to point out to him, in the end I wrote him an email because when I was researching the book I went back through all my old laptops to look at our correspondence because we emailed each other a lot even when we were in the house together. He'd mm. be in his office and I'd be in mine and I'd write to him and say, um, remember me, I'm that red-headed woman that lives in the house <laughs> and dinner's ready and could you come yeah. and pour me a gin and tonic sort of thing. So I wrote to him uh, not long, he just finished his radiation but he was really, really this angry and and furious man and I said, you know, um, if he had a doctor he called Dr Death because he was such a negative guy and he, I said, if Dr Death is right and you are, have only got 12 months to live, you've just wasted 
three months behaving like a complete dickhead. And, uh, you know, you don't be so hard on yourself. Think about what is important in your life and, you know, let's just get on with it. What about me? What about the kids? Mm. What about the grandkids? What about just living? What about enjoying this next bit of your life? And, you know, he came out of his office and poured me a gin and tonic and never said a word about the email and completely changed. changed. He just took it on board. And I'd been trying to say this to him, but he wasn't listening to me. He wasn't listening. But when he saw it and I, and my shock at seeing it again after five years, I hadn't remembered how harshly I had worded that email and I was shocked that I could have written to my dying husband telling him to pull his head in. Maybe that's what he needed at the I right think, time. I think that's probably what he needed at the time. It's called The Accidental Tour Guide. Mary Moody, thank you so much. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audio books are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere, everywhere. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.